Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about liturgical diversity and enculturation. Basically, what parts of the Mass can be adapted or changed depending on where you are in the world or even within the United States. And we even had a listener-submitted question that has a lot to do with liturgical diversity and enculturation. So without further ado, episode 11 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. Going to talk to you today about the mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. All right, uh, so we're going to talk today about liturgical diversity and culturation. I don't know what that is. I just saw it in the catechism, and you guys said we should talk about it. So uh, who wants to hit it off first? Well, I can start with one little comment. There's always been liturgical diversity, probably from the beginning you hear about... Well, uh, what, what is liturgical diversity? Different ways of worshiping God that nonetheless are right and true, but maybe emphasize one aspect over the other. We speak still to this day of Eastern rites, Ukrainian rites, Greek Orthodox, Greek Catholics, uh, Latin rite, Coptic rites. They're all different kinds of ways of worshiping God. It's Greek to me. It's not Greek if it's Coptic. (laughs) Oh, okay. Don't tell them that. They're not happy about that. But there are lots of ways to worship God, and they're all legitimate. So there's a legitimate uh, variety within the church, and there always has been. Catechism says that the mystery of Christ is so unfathomably rich that it cannot be exhausted by its expression in any single liturgical tradition. And so from the time of Christ, uh, the apostles go out to various places, uh, to India, to Rome, to, uh, to Alexandria, uh, and, and elsewhere in Jerusalem. And each of these places has its own culture its own human culture, that these seeds, the seed of Christ through the apostles is planted. And, you know, just like if you plant a seed in various different types of soil, uh, the, the plant will it'll all be kind of the same plant. It'll be a corn plant, whatever it is, go to Nebraska. Uh, but it'll be a little bit different depending on the soil from which it was cultivated. Cultivated. Ah, and so, it could be rocky soil. Yeah, it could be... Well, it, not very, be. be dry. Could what are be. the other ones? Thorny. Well, it could be good soil. It could be kind of a variety of types right. of uh, good soil. And the culture produces a different type of uh, fruit, for example. And so um, this one mystery takes root in different places around the world. And the liturgical traditions and theological and spiritual traditions that, uh, that grow up around it, while it's still focused on that one mystery of Christ... Each of these different cultures gives it a little bit different flavor, different emphases. And, Just and like wine. I mean, wine's planted in different uh, areas all over the world, and depending on where it is and, and also the weather that was happening at that time, it, um, it can change the taste of the wine. Right? right. There are an no- infinite number of ways to make wine, and they're not all the same, but if you have enough wine, then you start to realize what all the possibilities of wine are, and no one of them can capture all of it. Just like no one culture or national cultural tradition can capture all the ways to worship God. And so there's legitimate variety. Sometimes one way of worship will emphasize something that one other one is a little weak on, but it would never tolerate anything wrong. That's the key thing about diversity in this case. It's not a value-neutral diversity, just saying we'll parade all the different cultures and let them be what they are. There are some cultures that 
don't have all that they need to have to live up to the Christian perfection. And so you have to say, hey, you need to be elevated and purified. And then other cultures have uh, more naturally things that are sympathetic or less uh, sympathetic. So the image always is Christ. Christ is always the model for a fullness of enculturation. Yeah, right. right. The the culture that uh, is perfected is our human culture. And every culture has something in it that needs to be perfected. It may have parts in it that needs to be eliminated. So it's our culture that is perfected and changed and divinized by its incorporation into Christ and his church. So here's a little example. I was talking to a priest from Africa, and he said in his culture, they live in a village, and you know, their medical care is not that easily accessible, and they still suffer from a lot of diseases. He said every morning, everybody looks around at all the doors in the village, and if not one of the doors is closed, they go over and knock on the door because someone could be dead inside. This is They have to take care of each other, so they've preserved... Wow, that is intense. That's very intense. That's their morning ritual. They have to take care of each other. In America, doors closed, you probably assume somebody's at work. So our culture is a little weak on taking care of our neighbor, partly because we don't have to. In this other culture, they're very strong on taking care of the neighbor. So when these two cultures come together, they say, what can I learn from you? What can I learn from you? They both have a certain good in them, but when they meet each other, they start to uh, become more complete. And so the different liturgical rites that have this great variety will um, strengthen in one area what might be weak in another area, and that's why we learn from one another. But you know what he did say, too, is that they don't have a resident priest. So they wait around every uh, Sunday for the priest to come. The roads aren't good, so they don't know when the priest will come. So it's part of their culture to wait for the priest to show up. So what they do is the whole town gathers in the square in front of the church, and the kids run around, and the adults talk to each other, and they play, and they just rest. And then suddenly they see the dust cloud forming over the horizon because the car is coming across the dusty road. And then they start singing because they know the priest is about to show up. It's like Christ entering into uh, Jerusalem on uh, our Holy Saturday. Yeah, Palm Sunday. And so that's their culture. You wait for the priest and you commune with each other in this waiting expectation for the priest to show up. And it's a beautiful uh, result of their um, bad road system. But that's something we've really forgotten in our culture. Well, you know, make sure the priest doesn't preach over three and a half minutes because I got to be the first one out of the parking lot. Our culture is a little weak in the West in that area where this culture is strong. And so sure. the two can inform each other. Yeah, so our culture, our Western culture is generally more, generally more individualistic uh, it's not certainly not uh, a bad thing with not taking to extremes. We're, we're more efficient. Uh, we like to get things done. We do like, uh, you know, the short homily be out in 55 minutes, you know, because we have we, these are um, while you may or may not see these as uh, downsides. These are some aspects of Western culture that those two have uh, an influence on how we do things litur- liturgically efficiency, starting on time um, and, and, and other elements similar. How can we discern whether something is truly acceptable in terms of the diversity? I mean, you talked about as long as it's in the, in the right way with Christ, but how do we know that? Well, the church has a long history of talking about this, especially after the mid-20th century when Christianity really started to flower in places like Africa and Asia, and it wasn't just a European uh, religion anymore. And so they set up certain systems for understanding this, but basically the logic is anything that is compatible with the Christian faith can be preserved. And even if it's not exactly the way it's done in the European continent. So everything's tested and held up against the uh, standards of the gospel. So if you have ancestor worship, for instance, in your tradition, you can't really worship your ancestors, but you can help people to understand that venerating saints, who are their spiritual ancestors, uh, is one way to express what's naturally arising in their culture, but it's purified and completed and brought to the proper understanding. 
Or maybe there are certain things that are simply absent. They've never heard of Christ before, but they've heard of some God who rose from the dead or, you know, a sun God, for instance. You can say, look, God's prepared you to understand how this can be completed and brought to its fullness. Well, what's the custom around the sun God? Well, we would get up at dawn and do something. Okay, keep that custom, but make sure you understand that it's now being transferred to Christ. It might not be in the Latin Roman uh, books, liturgical books. But then you can start to get permission and incorporate these things into your local culture. So the culture has something that's the seeds of Christ, the semini verbe. Sem, what is it, Chris? Seeds is seeds a word. Of the word. <laughs> yes, shows us what we know. <laughs> uh, but now they need to be brought to fulfillment um, by having anything that's contrary to the faith removed and anything that's good and compatible with the faith can then grow and flower. And the reason this matters, especially when you talk about cultures that aren't traditionally Christian, is because a lot of Christianity was often associated with imperialistic cultures. So the French would show up and you know um, overrun some culture or the English or the Spanish or whoever. And if Christianity is seen as that thing which the conquerors brought and made us do, as soon as the conquerors go, faith goes with it. But if the people see the faith as their own, it's in their own language, it respects their own culture, their own tradition, their own history, then they say, well, this doesn't do damage to me. This brings me to my own fulfillment. And then it stays, even when the imperial powers go. And that's what any Christian con uh, conversion really should be. This is not foreign to me or harmful to me, but brings me to my best self. It's organic. Exactly. Well, it is. Notice these terms. What, what we used to call this adaptation is that uh, the right or the peoples would adapt uh, one to the other. But that term is, uh, is less used now. The document, actually, uh, that speaks about this is called a varietatis legitimate, legitimate, which means legitimate variations, which right. means there are some that are not, but many that are. Right, and so, and I think it's in that document, it says that we don't speak so much about adaptations, but um, uh, it's in here that we speak of uh, variations and enculturations with other cultures. And this is the, the point that you're making, Dennis, is that it's meant to, the, the faith is meant to organically cultivate uh, a, you know, what is good and true and beautiful in a human culture and elevate it and perfect it while uh, uh, eliminating those things uh, in, in the persons and in the cultures that are contrary to the faith. So, yeah, it is, it's organic. It, you know, mm -hmm. the, the word, the, the root of the word um, culture is cult. And so even... And all cults are bad. Okay, nice. Yeah, sure. my, <laughs> yeah, my daughter joined right. a cult. <laughs> it's called Catholicism. Uh, that's right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Agriculture, uh, uh, human culture, the, the root of all of these things is really this relationship uh, with the gods. And so there is a very organic relationship between the faith and a human culture. Um, I think somebody said, maybe it was uh, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, that you know, it's, it's really impossible to have a human culture that is completely devoid of God because it would be like saying, uh, oh, this is a triangle with only, that has four sides. It's just, it's not a part of the definition if God is not a part of the, the relationship with God is not a part of a culture. Right, and I teach the course here at the Institute on liturgical enculturation. And when you read the standard sociologist take on culture, they say, oh, it's a record of law, history, culture, you know, art, and so on. They don't say why anybody's doing this. And Cardinal Ratzinger speaks in his book, Truth and Tolerance, that culture is the record of the search for the relationship to the divinity. So when people develop a series of laws, it's what does the God want us to be? The, the uh, record of ritual, rites, uh, literature, art, music, usually it's because they want to understand themselves in relation to the divinity. And outside of that, it's completely arbitrary. And so culture is very closely rooted with this understanding of what does the divinity want of us and how do we do that the best? I think this is... Uh 
extremely refreshing to hear because we've talked about this before on the podcast, but uh, oftentimes we hear, uh, you know, people outside the church and, and even within the church saying, uh, well, this is just a bunch of people making rules and guidelines about how we're supposed to do something when what you guys are saying is is actually the process is supposed to be that organic ordered it all comes from something ordered and then we use that um we let god our relationship with god enhance something that is already organic and ordered and that's how we get these these rights and these different cultures right properly speaking enculturation is not saying well you know a bunch of mexican americans have suddenly come to our parish we want them to feel welcome well that's good that's not what enculturation is Properly speaking, enculturation is the bringing of the Christian faith to a culture that doesn't have it. So it's a very precise definition. And it's not just saying, okay, you tribe in the jungle, you're going to be little Romans and walk around in little cassocks and sing, you know, Palestrina and Latin. It's what is the authentic religious expression in your culture and how can it be perfected and glorified while maintaining its integrity? It's always respectful of the culture that it meets. And so that's what enculturation is, uh, properly speaking. Can this ever happen at a, on a personal level? Because like you guys are talking a lot about how um, a specific culture goes about their life. But then within, within uh, you know, myself, there are different devotions that I have or different ways that I, I can, you know, follow this conversation and I can almost enculturate myself and, and see that the tendencies that I have and then orient them towards, towards God and towards Christ. I heard a good descriptive uh, 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 description, if I can put it that way, of... Uh, how, how ironic, you know, a descriptive ironic, description. You know, of uh, culture once. Uh, I think it came from a, a priest named Aidan Kavanaugh, who says that uh, culture is the result of a set of beliefs and history and values of a, of a body that are then acted out okay, with, you know, with, with certain uh, um, behaviors. And when you believe a certain thing and you act it out, you are produced, you're cultivated, you're the, you're yield, uh, you, you, you are changed. So for example, um, let's take, you know, a Western American culture. What is it that we, that we believe? We believe in freedom. We believe in independence. Uh, the 4th of July, signing the Declaration of Independence, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, uh, all of the rest. These are some of the things that we believe. And when the 4th of July comes around, we enact that. So we drink beer and eat uh, hot dogs and brats and wear red, white, and blue and watch parades and sing patriotic songs and look at fireworks. And the idea is that on July 5th, if you've recalled these things in your history and these people and you've acted them out through uh, that particular celebration, on, on July 5th, you're a better American. Okay, Something has changed in you if you do these things. Now, if you never do these things, then you're not changed. Similarly, I think um, with the culture of the faith, right? So we believe certain things, uh, the Ten Commandments, we believe in Jesus Christ, the apostles, the history of Israel, uh, the saints are the people in our history. Uh, and we act those out as well in our daily lives, in, in the prayers that we pray, in going to Mass. And when you were finished with going to Mass, you've recounted these things, you've gone through certain ritual actions. And when Mass is over, you have been changed. God has cultivated you. Uh, you are the product or the produce, the yield of this process. And so you are changed too. So it does uh, not simply uh, affect a whole culture, but individuals in that culture as well. If they believe these things and do these things, they are the product of a Catholic culture. You could have just said, absolutely, Jesse, you're right. 
I would I would love to hear those words. <laughs> Can't say anything in just a few words. Oh, okay. So if you have a large like the largest nativity scene at Christmas the day after, are you the, are you a better are you a better Christian? Well, it may not have to be the largest nativity scene, but I mean, think of all the little things surrounding that. Let's say you don't have a nativity scene, or maybe you have, maybe you have the little one where uh, you know it's just stuck on the front of your refrigerator. Maybe you have a bigger one, and you actually move the figures around. You keep Mary and Joseph away until Christmas Eve, and then baby Jesus shows up, and they keep the wise men away until they come at the Epiphany. If you do these things in the detail, uh, and you recount uh, the meaning and the history and what happened. It's, it's more efficacious for you and your children that do that rather than if you just kind of downplay it or don't have one at all. So, yeah, th- these things are important because they really do truly change us. So. Right. We've talked a lot about signs and symbols, how liturgy is composed of signs and symbols, the whole Christian life is God mediated through signs and symbols. But signs, especially conventional signs, meaning kind of culturally bound signs, can really sound and look different in different places. If you go to Japan, for instance, when the, the um, first missionaries went there, they found out that white was the color of mourning there. So they wore white for funerals. And meanwhile, the church wants to wear black for funerals, and black was the color of, of festivity. So they said, why are you wearing festive colors at a funeral? And they had to get permission from Rome to wear white at funerals, in Catholic funerals in uh, Japan, because the sign value was completely opposite. So that was a special adaptation they were allowed, just a slight adaptation to the right but enculturating means more than that. It means what do you value? So when the um, some of the first missionaries went to China, for instance, they looked around and they said, who are the people that are respected in this culture? And they found that the Confucian scholars were considered the cultural, um, most culturally influential people. So some of the first missionaries would dress like the Confucian scholars with their little Roman collar. And the people in Rome, of course, are, why are you dressing like a pagan? That's, that's the kind of language they would say. They said, no, no, we're taking the conventional signs of this culture for who has authority to teach. And we're using that to break into this culture so that they can see Westerners not as foreigners, but as people in their own culture who then have something to offer them that's relevant uh, to them. So these external signs can, can be adapted very, very easily. I'm, I'm really glad you went into that because I did want to talk about you know, early missionaries and even current missionaries and how, how can you use this information to your advantage while, when trying to evangelize and mission to people? Because you're absolutely right, Dennis. I mean, we could be going to a culture that does something completely different than we do. And then how do we re- relate that to liturgy itself? Because if, if white is mourning for you and we're doing something completely different and we're using white because it means something else, then we need to take a look at that and say, wait a minute, how can we use what we have here to convey the proper message? So that's actually something I was thinking of asking anyway, so I'm glad you went into that. Well, whether it's international missionaries or when I hear the word missionary anymore, I'm fortunate to to know of focused missionaries, right, who Mm -hmm. uh, do their... uh, It goes beyond international, you know... (laughs) who do most of their work on uh, college campuses. All right, so they're a type of missionary, and they would need to know uh, their audience. Their, what is a, a college-age uh, person? Are they millennials still? I think so, yeah. Okay, so they would need to know uh, what is it in a millennial culture that they can uh, appeal to, that they can work with. I don't know what this is. Or I think I'm getting more and more out of touch with it uh, all the time. 
And so it would be whether you're, so these are missionaries on a college campus knowing uh, the audience uh, that they're trying to, to, to preach uh, Christ to and using those things in sort of the millennial uh, culture that they can use to attract uh, uh, them to Christ. Right. And, and every culture values something. You think about our own, even secular culture, you say, oh, it's a bunch of people who don't believe in anything sitting in the coffee shop every Sunday morning, but they believe in something. You start talking about vegetarianism and peace and the Pokemon kind of, Go, Pokemon Go, whatever it is. Why are they willing to get out of their chair and acquire these little, you know, electronic Pokemon things? There's something about the movement, the community activity, the desire to acquire things. There's some kind of movement toward a perceived good. Well, how can you say, hey, here's this thing that's good. Let me show you why what you desire is good, but how I can tell you how you can desire something more full, more beautiful. And so um, every culture has good in it. And the question is, how do you elevate it and bring it to its fullness through the preaching of Christ? And I suppose liturgically speaking, then, it's not a matter of changing the liturgy to meet those things in that culture, but showing... Uh, those individuals in any particular culture, how the liturgy meets those desires that they have uh, in, in ways even that are better than they may have expected. I think that's important to say, the, the order in which this happens. Because, I mean, you brought up focus missionaries, and even beyond just the general, they have Greek missionaries and, and uh, uh, sports missionaries, those who are exclusively working with those in athletic programs and things like that. And so if you can, if you can show people how to encounter this in the way that they want to, but not changing the beginning of it, you know, starting with the right and ordered, you know, way, and then using that their culture, you know, to enhance that or point towards that. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, sort of a liturgical fulfillment of the great things in, in, any, in any sort of culture. Yeah, I was in uh, Molokai not a few months ago in Hawaii, and the... Um, the Hawaiian culture had, I forget what they're called now, but there were these staffs that had these uh, feathers on the top, and the king would carry around the staff with these feathers. And so that was the thing that they put in on either side of the tabernacle in churches to show that the king was present. So nobody in Rome carried these sticks around with feathers on them, but that was a conventional sign in this part of the world that said the king is present. What's really important is that they're saying the king is present. How they say the king is present is like saying it in French or German or English or whatever. Even if it's a convention that the Western um, culture didn't understand, what happens is they go and they introduce the idea, and then that facet of culture that was alone, you know, as isolated as Hawaii was in the middle of the uh, Pacific Ocean, that culture gets brought into the church. And so all the facets of the gem of Christianity uh, start to get polished one at a time, and the whole thing becomes one uh, perfect offering. In fact, Cardinal Ratzinger mentioned that the reason there are different cultures is because of the fall, which is funny. Oh, whoa. You know, and this sounds like fighting words in the multicultural crowd, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, we value our diversity, and we do. Um, assuming that each diverse culture has good to offer, which it does. But he said the reason we're not one culture is because we were divided, the Tower of Babel and everybody. I was, was just going to say, it makes me think of Babel because you, you were talking about what, what something means king, kingly to us. We, we think crown, throne, and we talked about genuflection and what that means to somebody kingly. And, you know, here's this other group of people that they just have a completely different interpretation of what king is and what means king. So, I mean, Tower of Babel is exactly what I was thinking. But what happens when you bring Christianity to any particular culture is their, what remains of their particular knowledge. Think of all the knowledge in the world when the humanity was one. gets cut up into segments and each one takes their different segment of knowledge with them and develops it over time. 
one segment doesn't know what the other one has developed and then they come together and they share that what each one has managed to perfect over a thousand years or thousands of years and share it with each other and so the the ending of the division of uh, of the fall and the tower of babel is the the coming together of the many cultures into one body and this is much different than we value our diversity because we don't really value our diversity. We don't really let the, um, you know, what are they, people eat people, what are they called? Cannibals. Cannibal. Yeah. We don't have the cannibal float right in the parade and say, oh, there's a culture we, we revere. No, there's a value system. And then the cultures are evaluated against that value system. And so uh, sometimes cultures need to be elevated and purified. That's tough language for people who think that all cultures should be equal and that Christians come along and tell people to change. It sounds like it's doing violence to the culture, but... It doesn't. What it does, it lets their culture exist intact, but perfected and better than it was before. Absolutely. And I think eventually, you know, we'll discuss in this podcast the value of unity and worship. Like you were talking, all people coming together and under, recognizing and understanding diversity, but worshiping in unity, which is what, where we're all pointed and oriented. So um, I think that's all we have for this week. Uh, it's time for a uh, question for the liturgy guys. Let's do it. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? So we have a question this week that, um, in reading it, I feel like it's two questions. So we'll handle the first part of that question this week, and then next week we'll, we'll, we'll tackle the second part. So um, this uh, question comes from Paul. He says, every Pentecost and Christ the King, our parish has Hawaiian dancers dancing in the sanctuary, while we have a large Asian parish representation, I tried to talk about the case that is not allowed, that dancing is not allowed in liturgy. So that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question he asked about how to deal with uh, liturgical abuse. So the first part, we want to know about dancing in the liturgy and is it allowed? And, you know, we talked about cultural diversity. So what do you guys got? Well, I think the question about whether dancing is an abuse uh, does require a little bit of subtle nuance. You know, the church allows things that are um, not traditional to the Roman rite to be added, provided that they preserve the substantial unity of the Roman rite. That means that it still is recognizable as the Roman rite, and it can't, things can't be substituted and it becomes some other kind of rite. So something like dance is very culturally specific. You know, in the West, in the secular West, dance is usually associated with drinking and carousing and hooking up and things that are not really considered liturgical. But in some cultures, dance is still tied to uh, joyful processional religious uh, movement or processions from one place to another. And so places like Africa, for instance, may have dance that's still indigenously part of their celebratory um, worship. So the document uh, Veritatis Legitimate, which the Vatican put out on enculturation, says when it comes to things like gesture and posture, that they have to belong to the nature of the rite itself. You can't just say, okay, everybody, we're going to stop the mass and the third grade kids are going to come dance for a while, even if it's something that's supposed to be a sacred dance. It should never interrupt the rite, and it should always be subordinate to it, just like you wouldn't have a concert of sacred music in the middle of the mass. Oh, everybody stop, so Mary Joe can sing a, a pious song. So where movement usually happens is in processions from the back of the church to the front of the church, the different processions that the church allows. And so the question is, do they express the attitude of humanity before God? Is there this humility that this is a joyful, natural uprising of our culture that still is associated with sacred things? Or is it an interruption and something foreign to the nature of the Mass? 
So the question of Hawaiian dancers, you have to ask those questions. Is this a living tradition in this parish? Or is it something that seems to interrupt the liturgy and distract people from the nature of the liturgy itself? Yeah, is the parish actually in Hawaii? And does the Hawaiian culture, uh, what types of meanings does uh, dancing have for that particular culture? Or is it in uh, a, a continental uh, parish? And the same question would be asked, what sort of meanings accrue to dancing uh, in, in American culture? Right. So here's the, the, the factor which decides this. Is it a true expression of communal prayer and adoration and praise? Or is it simply a performance? that makes people think, well, we're, we're welcoming people of different cultures. If it's a performance, it doesn't belong in the liturgy. If it's genuinely rising from the nature of the religious expression of the people and is not a distraction from the liturgy or the unity of the Roman rite, then it's allowed. So yeah, well, case maybe, by case, you have yeah. to figure that out. Well, and who figures it out, too? Is it the pastor, or the sacred worship committee of the parish? Ultimately, it's, uh, uh, it's the bishops. Mm-hmm. Who, they're, they're the ones who, uh, in communion with the Holy See and under particular directives, it's, to the, it's for the bishops to determine it, in which cases these are allowed to. So uh, it's not necessarily pastors themselves or parishes themselves decide what might be uh, included, but there's a larger universality that should be considered too. The basic logic is if it belongs in the right, if it contributes to the right, if it expresses an attitude of praise and humility before God, it's, it's welcome there. If it doesn't, then it probably shouldn't be there. And I think we're probably missing a little bit of information here. Uh, he doesn't say if it was in a procession or it, it's, you know, so obviously we're not there, so we can't speak exactly to this instance, but I think that information that you guys are talking about definitely helps. So if you have any questions about the liturgy, feel free to, to uh, email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. And thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.